Tiger Rising. We have a very exciting show for you today. Uh, nice to have you back in the studio, Brianna. Nice How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was not what I would call restful, but that's what Thanksgiving is all about, right? Cooking and commuting, and it was a really good holiday. How about yourself? Same, same. Okay. But it's glad to be back <laughs> into the swing of things. Uh, tell us what's going on today. Well, we have Teslin Figaro returning, and we'll get into Progressive's action, or lack thereof, on picking leadership in the next Congress. Plus, we'll talk with Scott Moskovitz about why critics are unsatisfied with President Biden's response to the lockdown protests in China. But first, last night, President Biden announced he will push Congress to block rail workers' December 9th strike and force them to accept the deal he brokered with union leaders and rail bosses this fall. In a statement made last night, the president wrote, quote, as a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures in the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. Real workers currently receive no paid sick days and are penalized for taking time off. Biden's September deal, which Speaker Nancy Pelosi confirms the House will not amend, authorized three unpaid days off a year for medical care scheduled at least 30 days in advance, one paid personal day off and a 24 percent raise over the next five years. As part of the deal, rail bosses also pledged not to penalize workers who miss work for being hospitalized and to negotiate further with the unions about improving the regular scheduling of days off. According to Labor Notes, Jonah Furman, it is exceedingly rare in the U.S. for the White House to have direct control over union negotiations, and this one was a layup. Put forward a bill to include paid sick days that costs the rail carriers a fraction of their insane profits and improves freight rail service, and Biden refuses. NBC News reports that the two biggest freight rail companies, BNSF and Union Pacific, made record profits during 2021, ranking in a combined $22 billion. Meanwhile, House Democrats say they plan to vote on legislation forcing the deal through as soon as this week. So, Brianna, I can imagine you are not pleased with uh, with with Brandon uh, <laughs> rising to the occasion and shutting down this strike. Yeah, look, it's not only that I'm not pleased. I was watching some Fox News, you know, more conservative mm -hmm. coverage of it, and it seems like there's a lot of solidarity with these rail workers across the board. Uh, one rail worker being interviewed pointed out that that 24% raises is accommodating for basically back pay and shouldn't be glorified as some big, you know, uh, boost. Um, that they are the currently mm -hmm. uh, asking for 15 pay days off. And what you really have to realize is that when they say they have zero days off, that means they can't plan for holidays, they can't plan for their kid's wedding, they can't plan for any of it. Mm -hmm. um, no paid days off, and they work these very demanding schedules because of, you know, how the train, you know, obviously trains require there to be all this regularity. But on top of that, the industry has cut the number of workers that they are willing to have on to fill in by something like 20 or 30 percent over the last decade or so, at the same time that these companies are experiencing record profits. So the workers are saying they absolutely can't afford to do this. And Joe Biden framing this as workers versus Americans getting their goods on time is completely false. What Biden should be doing is putting pressure on the railroad company owners to accept a deal which is more than fair for them as they're making money off of these workers' hand over fist. These, these are the quintessential American workers' backbone of our society. It is really kind of galling that Biden continues to paint himself as a the most pro-worker president since FDR when he is going to put the thumb on the scale like this and, and suppress these workers. Yeah, I mean, a week or two paid time off is pretty standard just 
in general in the workforce, so it doesn't seem like it should be a huge sticking point or something they don't get, frankly. So it is, I mean, I absolutely understand Biden wanting to avoid a strike or wanting to avoid shutdowns as we're heading into the holiday season sure. just in general. You know, getting the economy back on track is such an important demand for all Americans, but also these demands seem pretty yeah. reasonable. He, so. he could avoid a strike by putting the pressure that he's right now yes. putting on American rail workers, put that pressure on the Cor corporations, the, and the small number of owners that now own the whole enterprise. Yeah. Wanted to note, you'll probably get a kick out of this. I saw people mentioning this. Um, the Secretary of Transportation, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, was off for quite a while. Uh, for um, uh, He was on leave um, for, uh, I think it was for childcare-related leave. He was off for quite a leave. while. Yeah. And uh, they was... didn't, the Transportation Department, they didn't announce that he this leave was going on. He just yeah. kind of took it, and it lasted a, a long while. And Look, and as as well he should, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, the it was point just in that... the middle of a supply chain crisis, et cetera. <laughs> but I think the point is that, you know, People should be able to take time off when they have a new baby. I think he has two new babies. Yeah. People need time to take and care of their And they were ill. Families. I read that story about they had a lot of illness oh, I'm, issues. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. And the standard should be that everyone gets the same benefits as Pete Buttigieg, people in government, and elites. Yeah. Not elites putting the thumb on the scale so that workers have to bend over backwards so that they can get their luxury goods on time. Like the framing of, that Joe Biden used there and that so many people have been using um, to make this, to put consumers against workers— it's 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 a playbook they've been using for a really long time. Unfortunately, it's been effective. But I think that they're really messing up here because people have a lot of sympathy for folks in this particular industry. Industry, the work they do, they can't be written off as like baristas or folks who just you know got a basket weaving degree or whatever. These are the quote unquote real sure. Americans they've been elevating for what so long. But if the Secretary of Transportation could take weeks off for leave, maybe a little bit of paid sick time for the workers seems. Seems fair to me. 100%. Let's see what rail, Railroad Joe, what is he, Amtrak Joe. Amtrak Joe. <laughs> With his name on a plaque in the Delaware Amtrak station. Let's see if he actually um, comes through for the people that he's been kind of stealing valor the, from. The only time, time I think I ever saw Joe Biden in person uh, was on the Amtrak, it was a train to New York. Mm. He was in a different cabin for me. Oh, I just saw him. Ne go, next go time you see him, you're going to have to give him a little bit. going to have to let him know. I'm going to have to say, <laughs> I was very, very upset with you. Hello. All right, we'll have more rising for you right after this. What's on your radar today, Robbie? Well, Brianna, Sam Bankman-Fried's con continues to come undone, according to a new report from the New York Times, which has finally joined the chorus of FTX critical coverage. After initially downplaying a little bit, in my view, the severity and depravity of SBF's alleged financial crimes. Now, in this New York Times report, the Times is detailing SBF's desperate attempt to cling to power even as his crypto empire, which was built on a house of cards, began to fall apart. Now, in my previous radars on this subject, I've explained how SBF's generous donations to Democratic politicians, and it should be noted, some Republican politicians as well, and his general funding of the media was all, it seems, a front to make himself seem like a good, morally upstanding, praiseworthy person. This was the businessman, the tech entrepreneur, that progressives could actually get behind. He was the good guy, the white knight, the conscientious investor. Now we all know that's not true. My colleague at Reason Magazine, Zach Weissmuller, thinks that SBF built his company by winning the trust of societal elites. And Zach argues that this is actually contrary to the very ethos of crypto. Let's watch some of this recent video he produced on the subject. Unlike blue chip financial institutions that gain trust by being too big to fail, 
meaning taxpayers will provide a backstop, SBF did it in part by winning the affection of the progressive elite in a way that set him apart from the usual libertarian crypto bros. The World Economic Forum hosted him as a speaker in Davos, listing FTX as a corporate partner. Journalists fawned over him, including Fortune magazine, which asked if he was the next Warren Buffett in a cover story that evoked another infamous profile. SEC chief Gary Gensler is accused by one Congress member of helping the company to create a regulatory monopoly. As the second largest donor to Democratic politicians in the lead-up to the 2022 midterms, SBF branded himself a new kind of capitalist, a different sort of billionaire. The guy you see next to me is the most generous billionaire in the world. I wanted to get rich not because I like money, but because I wanted to give that money to charity. Zach Weissmuller, senior producer at Reason Magazine, joins us now to elaborate. Great to see you, Zach. Great to see you, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Yes. So you are so much more knowledgeable about uh, this space than I am. So I've really been wanting to get you on for a while now. I think a lot of people have reasonable questions about uh, crypto in general, given what's gone on with SBF. I think it's totally fair to ask, well, is this something, was this unique to this one bad actor, or is there something really unstable about, about the entire system? So can you walk us through, you know, how, what you're thinking is about SBF and how he might be similar or different from what has gone on in the sector writ large? Yeah, I mean, this is in many ways a tale as old as time, even though it's got this like 21st century hook of crypto. Um, And there is a portion of this that is about crypto because FTX was issuing its own cryptocurrency that kind of helped it uh, cook the books a little bit, uh, allegedly. And um, but really the the arc of what we've seen uh, is something we've seen over and over in the world of finance and venture capital. Um, the irony that he was using crypto is what you know caught my attention and made me want to do this little uh, video op-ed because the fundamental notion of cryptocurrency is that it's you're trying to eliminate the need to trust someone like Sam Bankman-Fried. You're, mm. you're trying to get rid of third-party intermediaries and rely instead on um, open-source code that can be inspected and and verified. Um, instead of relying on kind of the reputation of a guy who ensconced himself in these elite circles to gain both uh, investment and uh, trust writ large. Right, because we've both libertarians and leftists and everyone have had criticisms of uh, the traditional banking or financial sector, the crash, et cetera, you know, the, the, and then the bailing out of powerful, wealthy, elite interests. Um, something that I, drew me to crypto it was the promise, at least, of having a system that wasn't so wrapped up in all of that, or presented itself, at least, as not being wrapped up in that, uh, but was using this technology and was, right, you don't have to trust, you know, this bank or something you've got, because it's, it's, it's part of the, the way the technology works gets around that. So, so do you think that that still holds up? And, and you know, what was SBF doing differently? Well, so the original white paper that Bitcoin was based on, um, the the pseudonymous writer of that, Satoshi Nakamoto, wrote that what we need is an electronic payment system that's based on cryptographic proof instead of trust. And so mm-hmm. we're still, uh, you know, B- Bitcoin 
is that. Uh, but there's all these, there's this whole other class of cryptocurrencies and, you know, cryptocurrency is now this, this broad category that could be something like Bitcoin, or it could just be kind of a, a scam coin. There's a lot of scams out there. And what SBF was doing was playing the kind of Elizabeth Holmes game using his network, his charisma, an altruistic sales pitch to seduce celebrities and politicians and institutional investors and just ingratiate himself um, in that network. And, and that is one way to establish trust. But as you were saying, you know, as libertarians and kind of the crypto critique of the modern finance system is that we want to get away from having to rely on those sort of networks um, and uh, rely on the kind of regulations that uh, SBF was lobbying for in, in contradiction to what, what kind of the world of crypto wants. Um, so, yeah. Well, Zach, help me understand this, because wanting to get away from having to rely on the trust of individuals, um, you know, these, these people who are pumped up by the media, people, you know, selling apes on uh, late night shows and doing all this kind of stuff. You know, the reason that you would be able to not rely on something more concrete as if you had the kinds of regulations that exist to some degree in the banking industry. I would argue that there needs to be more, but that provide that there has to be a certain amount of cash on hand that you won't deposit your money in a bank and they won't go and spend it all or invest it all in a way that can cause a run on the bank type situation to happen, the likes of which that happened with um, Sam Bankman Freed. But it does seem as though there isn't necessarily that same embrace of having more regulation in this field. Sam Bankman Freed obviously gave a lot of money, $40 million to liberal campaigns, while his fellow executive Ryan Salami gave $23 million to Republicans, hoping that whoever won, they would put regulations in effect that were basically lax and friendly toward him being able to continue this kind of a scheme. But how are people who are libertarian and who are dealing, who are, are kind of fans of crypto, looking at this regulatory landscape, are they hoping for more regulation? Or, you know, what was the point of complaining about Sam Bankman-Fried if, in fact, you actually want less regulation than he was even ar arguing for for himself? Well, Sam Bankman-Fried wanted more regulation that favored his interests. And that is the libertarian critique of how this all plays out in the real world. You know, um, public choice theory, rent seeking, uh, regulatory capture. Th that is what uh, he was trying to do. He was trying to capture the regulators. He wanted, uh, you know, uh, he was he was being accused of being cozy with the head of the SEC, uh, Gary Gensler. You know, they had acquired BlockFi which had worked out this regulatory deal um, and were, I think, were hoping to apply that to themselves and uh, create what, you know, critics have called a regulatory moat around himself. So they are kind of the one regulated entity uh, and then all the competitors are kind of elbowed out. And the idea of cryptocurrency is that it's supposed to be accessible to the entire world. And the way that you build um, kind of trust and uh, you know, safety for people who are involved with it is by growing the size of the network. So the, the larger the network, uh, for instance, the Bitcoin network becomes, the more difficult it becomes for any bad actor to come in and mess with it. And SBF with, was actually trying to set up barriers and create a whole licensing regime for this emerging sector known as DeFi or decentralized finance. And that is why a lot of people within the cryptocurrency world 
we're like, this guy's not one of us because he's trying to set up, you know, a, a new class of gatekeepers to the world of crypto when we want people in, you know, developing countries to be able to uh, access uh, the world of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance because it's it's supposed to be something that uh, people who can't get access to the traditional financial system can get access to. Zach, how, help me understand how those people are protected, how the size of the community, how the number of people who have bought in helps people from getting defrauded in these ways. Well, if you're talking about something like Bitcoin specifically, uh, the rules of Bitcoin cannot be changed. Um, you know, you, when you're dealing with an, an entity that, uh, you know, an, an exchange like FTX or here in the U.S., we've got Coinbase and Kraken, those are centralized institutions and they are going to, they already are subject to some level of regulation. But if you just want to hold your own Bitcoin, you just can get a little, the equivalent of a little flash drive, put it on there, learn how to do it. And nobody can do anything about it. That's called self-custody. And so that is um, kind of what the, the, the people who, who believe in Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies uh, as a means to uh, allow new users into the financial system, that's what they believe in. It's uncensorable money that you have complete control over, and no third parties can come in and you know take it unless you you give them your code or something like that. And there's a sense too in which SBF's um, alleged fraud was sort of revealed. Uh, if I'm following, you know how this happened to some degree by other people in the crypto community who want, I mean, it was part of a competitive, you know, business, cutthroat business sort of thing, what, what Binance did, right? But it was, yeah. it was to reveal to the public that, oh, this is actually isn't worth anything. And you, you, it's been misrepresented what, you know, where his funds are and how much funds he has and how much it's worth, what he, what he paid his investors and employees with actually wasn't worth anything. That was other people in the crypto sphere um, trying to educate the public, even though it was be certainly beneficial for, for their platforms. Do I, do I have that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, this first really started leaking out with a, an article published by Coindesk. And then, yeah, Binance went in once uh, they were starting to run into financial trouble. Binance is the other big uh, kind of uh, their, their big rival in, in this space. And we're looking to acquire them or bail them out. And once they started looking to their financials, uh, saw the problems and started uh, the, the CEO started, you know, blasting it out on Twitter and that. That initiated the bank run. And he also, yes, th there was a uh, some animosity there because uh, SBF had been running and lobbying in D.C. and kind of, uh, you know, make, making uh, comments about uh, how the CEO of Binance was going to get locked out of this. So, yeah, the, the kind of angling to get in there and, and kind of capture the regulators is, is a big part of the story and, and possibly what ultimately contributed to bring him, bring him down. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your expertise. There's so much here we could get into. I'm sure we'll have you back. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robbie. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Elon Musk has been called out for opening the floodgates since taking ownership of Twitter. On Monday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre issued a warning aimed at the billionaire. Let's watch. Well, look, this is something that we're certainly uh, keeping an eye on. And uh, look, um, 
we, you know, we have always been very clear um, and that uh, when it comes to social media platforms, it is their responsibility uh, to make sure that um, when it comes to misinformation, when we when we comes to the hate that we're seeing, uh, that they they take action, that they continue uh, to take action. Again. We're all keeping a close eye on this. We're all uh, uh, monitoring uh, what's what's currently uh, occurring. Hmm. Several companies have taken issue with Musk's approach when it comes to defending free speech, including Apple. According to Musk, the tech giant stopped advertising on Twitter in uh, the new Twitter CEO asked, do they hate free speech in America? What's going on? Tim Cook. The tech tycoon also said Apple threatened to remove social media giant Twitter from its app store, which would be a huge blow. And according to a Washington Post report, Apple, Twitter's biggest advertiser, accounted for nearly $50 million in revenue in the first quarter of 2022. So a lot to unpack here. Um, first, on the whole you know, Apple dispute, I, I think Apple taking Twitter out of the App Store would be, yeah, a pretty, like, full nuclear conflict kind of move for them to do that. I don't know that they're actually going to. All yeah. we have is Elon Musk kind of hinting that. I yeah. doubt that's going to happen. Them not advertising on Twitter, like, you can complain about that. You can be upset about that. But that's not really a free speech violation. Like, it, it would, in fact, be a violation of Apple's free speech if they were obligated Correct. to advertise on Twitter. The whole so it's point a very is Citizens United, which conservatives right. and, frankly, corporatists in the Democratic right. Party also love, is that money is speech. Your ability to spend your money, use your money the way you want, is considered to be a speech right. And Apple being able to choose not to spend its money, to be Twitter's top uh, advertiser right. is well within their rights. And you don't have to Apple like doesn't it. advertise during our show. They're not, they're not <laughs> right. censoring us. They're just not. Right. And this happens again and silly. again. I got to say, this is a pattern that's happened across a lot of these free speech yeah. conversations where people selectively try to frame things as speech issues, even when the speech the speech interests are on exactly the opposite side of the equation because they know that there's all of this like political energy around the idea of freedom and yeah. in, in, in protecting. But that's not to say there right. is no there are no f threats to free speech. Now, what Karine Jean Pierre said is, to my mind, getting close. I don't think it explicitly crosses a line, but it's getting close to what would actually be a free speech violation, which is when the government pressures these companies to make sure. decisions like this. In the past, um, uh, Jen Psaki, the former White House press secretary, was, was even more full-throated in the summer of last summer, the summer before, when, when Joe Biden said they're killing people, referring to Facebook and Twitter, not taking down mm. enough vaccine misinformation. Mm. Um, another White House official uh, went on uh, Morning Joe and talked and talked, was asked, like, well, if these companies don't take down misinformation, shouldn't shouldn't you change their uh, remove Section 230 to punish them? And she said, yeah, that's something we'll look into. Like that's getting into a kind of muzzling of these companies or guiding their de decisions in threatening ways that I think does run up against um, the First Amendment. Yeah, that's different. That, right. What but that, Apple that is, is not, not. All we know that is actually happening right now is Elon Musk adding Tim Cook, like like snitch-tagging Tim Cook on Twitter, as so that's going to affect policy. And this is something that he's been doing throughout, kind of doing these Twitter polls, trying to use public consensus as a way to make decisions about what's happening in this multi-billion dollar company. And that's not reassuring folks who want there to be, like, the whole point of him taking over was for them to put some kind of transparent you know, predictable policy into place that was not politically driven, that people could set their clock to, that wasn't about being coerced by uh, the Biden administration or being coerced by 
kind of more, you know, right wing, whatever interest online. He has not done that. He's not done that. And look, I, I think a lot of people were frustrated with how Twitter was being operated before, myself included. There was a lot of shadow banning. There were a lot of leftists who were caught up in, in these um, bans and raids and stuff. And to be clear, that has continued under, um, uh, under uh, Musk. Garland Nixon and a number of other leftists have been banned from the app for having leftist, left politics, a political commentator. And this is exactly the point. The right doesn't often take up the cause of leftists who have been subject to these draconian policies, and it does seem very politically motivated and not at all about pure free speech rights. Mm. Yeah, I, it, look, it's it's not it's not what we, what we want is transparent rules, like you said, um, that are politically as politically neutral as possible. We don't want a repeat. Uh, I think no one wants a repeat, including the previous management of the Hunter Biden laptop debacle. Yeah. Musk has said he wants to be transparent about how, how that happened, and he's planning to release some kind of documentation of, of how those decisions took place. I'm very interested in that. Um, but, but yeah, the whole—when he said the thing about Alex Jones, it was very much a, a personal reason for not bringing him back. That, that being that he had lost a child, and so he right. wouldn't bring Alex Jones back because he would done the Sandy Hook truth. Which thing. is not—these are difficult conversations, because it's not— it's a private company. It's, it doesn't have to follow the First Amendment. It can make moderation decisions that are contrary to what would be allowed in the true public square, like the sidewalk or the public, the quad on a public university campus. Uh, we all think that something different than the previous rules was very arbitrary and capricious and unfavorable to conservatives and also contrarians on the left, et cetera didn't make any sense. But we, we use the, the, the free speech language because that's what's familiar to us even when it doesn't get you all the way because there are some cases of things that most people do want moderated to make the platform a more enjoyable experience and one that is attractive to advertisers, which right. is the only way the company is going to succeed in the long run. advertisers. And him thinking yeah. that it wasn't about advertisers is really hubristic and narrow-minded look. But he is, I, I, well, it, I, I don't want to say that he, he has no plan and he has no idea what he's doing because he has successfully built... Massive yeah, he, look, he wanted to get away from an advertiser model. Companies. He yeah. wanted to make it about people paying for it as a subscription Well, maybe service. that is a better model. He, I don't know. He found out that there weren't as many paying subscribers. That was his first complaint, right? That's how he tried to back out of the right. deal, saying that there weren't enough people to make his model successful. He ended up having to buy the company anyway, and now he's scaring away his advertisers anyway. And you cannot blame the left or free speech for these big corporations. The right often likes to pay people like um, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, these, these uh, you know, corporation, like corporate heads as like leftists because Whole Foods is like Well, because they're woke. They're crunchy. socially progressive. They're I mean, like, uh, to what, I don't know anything, frankly, about how Jeff Bezos feels about mm -hmm. poor people or immigrants or black people or gay people. I actually don't know. He doesn't, as far as I can tell, say very much about it. But it's misleading the has public he given, has he spoken about what the real battle lines are. Or something, probably. I, I don't know, I don't but know. Who, who has it at this point? <laughs> right, well, that's what I'm saying. That's, like, what, like, that's, what, that's like, exactly what conservatives think. Conservatives, exactly. Including conservatives will be on a multidisciplinary, a, multi, a bipartisan panel. That, that's, that's not to say anything about anything. But the point is, it's all distracting from the fact that it's top-down. And I'm sorry, none, all of these billionaires are beholden to advertisers first and foremost, are, are beholden to the bottom line of their own personal profits. And on the side, they 
constrain the news for their own personal benefit. And we know that this happens when we see the coverage of certain labor issues in something like mm-hmm. the Washington Post owned by Elon Musk. There is a reason why these people with a lot of money choose to spend it on buying information pathways that allow the public to be informed. Well, in some cases, that no, they're absolutely beholden to, to those interests in a lot of cases. In some cases, they're beholden to... Um, to mainstream media criticism, to, you know, when Amazon takes a book or a movie or whatever out because it's offensive, that's usually because well, someone wrote, someone, yeah. Media Matters came after them or, or, or Vox or, or, well, I, I'll tell you what Twitter. they haven't taken down. Amazon hasn't taken down the, the movie that Kyrie Irving yeah. got in so much trouble for tweeting out. I don't think what they, they have done is raise the price on the videos so that if you want to watch it, it now costs you 40 American dollars. How, were you trying to watch it? I was. I was going to watch it for research yeah. purposes. I still plan to. Um, I just was wrestling with the idea of paying uh, $40 to watch uh, a movie that apparently contains uh, Holocaust nihilism. But yeah, anything the for the job. That, put that on the next hour expense sheet. <laughs> Someone's going to have to explain that one. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Five major media outlets, including The New York Times and The Guardian, are calling for the charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be dropped. In a letter to the U.S. government, the media organizations call the indictment a dangerous precedent that threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. They go on to say that publishing is not a crime, something we've said on the show multiple times, and obtaining and disclosing sensitive information when necessary in the, is in the public interest. That's a core part of the daily work of journalists. Criminalizing this work makes democracy significantly weaker. Julian Assange was arrested in 2019 under the Espionage Act following the publication of classified material that detailed corruption, diplomatic scandals, and spying on an international scale. Friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald, responded to the push for the charges against Assange to be dropped, tweeting, quote, good to see the media outlets who profited from his scoops finally defending him. Robbie, why do you think it took so long? I mean, this is unequivocally good news. I I shouldn't immediately poop on it. But there is this question, like, what is with this timing? Yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, better late than never, I yeah. guess. Uh, they are absolutely right to say what we've been saying for years on the show. The previous hosts were saying it before we were. Uh, it is not a crime to reveal to the information, uh, to reveal to the public information you got that is in the public interest about the lies the government told that contradicts what they said. That is not a crime. That is journalism. That is what the New York Times does. That is what the Washington Post does on a good day. (laughs) Uh, And uh, it's what all journalists should aspire to do. And Julian Assange is not a criminal. He is a hero. And he has been under, he has suffered a horrible, a horrible cost for what he did. He has been, you know, he was trapped in that embassy for years uh, under not thrilling conditions. And is now actually being held uh, in uh, prison in Britain under terrible conditions. Uh, it's horribly impacted his health. Uh, he's his in family bad life. state. Yeah, we've talked. Uh, we've talked to his his brother on the show before. Um, it's just it's awful. Uh, and the U.S. the U.S. government could easily put an end to this. They could just stop this indictment, or they could issue a a uh, you know a, a blanket pardon or commutator, whatever, to any of those things would be fine. They, but they should stop trying to imprison him. They should let him be a free man, and they should thank him for the public service he performed. Yeah, I mean, Glenn has been making this point really consistently about the New York Times and these other papers 
profiting off of benefiting from these kinds of stories. Yeah. And, you know, part of the, the tension that's always existed is this kind of New York Times rule where there are so many uh, publications that could be implicated by uh, Assange um, going down under the uh, Espionage Act. And it is curious. I wonder whether or not some of the conversations we've been having in a foreign policy context about authoritarianism overseas has continued to heighten the contradictions as America wants to demonstrate that it's much more free than other countries like Russia and China. Is the fact of how it's treated Julian Assange kind of um, an inconvenient uh, uh, mm -hmm. truth that it's having to contend with more and more? The Obama administration said it wanted to be the most transparent administration in history and then prosecuted a record number of whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you can't just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. I think there's a certain, in, in terms of the media, I think there's a certain amount of, um, maybe this is vibes only, I don't know, but <laughs> contempt for a Julian Assange type figure who is who is an independent figure, who, who was not operating yeah, or working for an establishment, like establishment media yeah. property, yeah. was doing his, his own thing. Uh, th there's a certain amount of protecting the prestige of an institution like the Times and the Post, et cetera. So when they do it, it's okay. When so it, it's good. Not only is it okay, it's yeah. good. It should be celebrated. When someone, you know, outside the bubble does it, it's like, well, yeah. it's, you know, that's yeah. and I also provocative. That, that's contrarian. That's weird. You know, oh, I don't know. For sure. For sure. And, and as much as we talk about, and I think especially conservatives talk about cancel culture, it's worth noting that some of the allegations, you know, I think that part of what allowed so many people to walk away from Assange, including journalists who sort of know better, was this idea that he's a bad guy anyway. And some of the Me Too allegations mm -hmm. that had surfaced and that were ultimately discredited stuck in people's minds such that I remember there was an interview done with AOC in the beginning, I think January of 2021 at The Intercept, where she was asked uh, about her support of Julian Assange. The Intercept was obviously an outlet that has been really all on these, on these issues for a long time, founded by Glenn Greenwald. And her answer kind of dodged and alluded to the fact that, oh, I don't know that much about him, but it seems like he's unsavory, basically alluding to those right. kinds of allegations. And I, I think a lot of people have fell into that trap, it's not saying that they were bad people for having fallen into the trap, but you really do hope at least our Congress members, our leftist Congress members in particular, um, keep an eye on the ball. Yeah. A little more closely. That has that. happened so many times so now many that times. people tainted with Me Too stuff, which can run the gamut. A, a, the, all the way from very serious accusations Correct. to you made someone feel uncomfortable once in a social situation. Correct. And then there's no, and it could be a million years, it could have been yesterday, it could have been a million years ago. There could be plenty of verification, there could be no verification whatsoever. The person, but it's just the, the whiff of it. Yeah, especially for the Can left. Doom you. Because, it's crazy. Because the left cares. Like, the left yeah. actually does want to protect the interests of women. They do They do want to do the right thing. So when an Alex Morris situation comes along, that was the, the right. gay uh, candidate in Massachusetts who had an accusation that went absolutely nowhere, but it ruined his presidential uh, his congressional campaign. You saw this happen with Shahid Buttar, who was one of the only people to ever challenge Nancy Pelosi in her district. Um, uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. reported to be a Pelosi-backed campaign to, to elevate the accusations against him, which were not... They were the kind of interpersonal types of accusations, nowhere near like the kind of Weinstein type accusations. Um, and I think it, it ends up hurting the left more because they immediately bend the knee. Scott Stringer 
in uh, the New York mayoral race had mm -hmm. to drop out and was abandoned by AOC and the other leftists. I was just reading it. about, I, so I just found him again, I couldn't recall his name, the author Juno Diaz, mm -hmm. uh, who, who was um, canceled. Uh, it, it was a Pulitzer Prize where he was part of the Pulitzer Prize board and he was canceled for a, a Me Too accusation and you know, he lost all these kind of professional gigs, all these, and then, and he, so it was investigated by the Pulitzer Committee and they found, so they, like, they hired a firm to invest like you would do if it was a workplace mm -hmm. thing. And they found there was no validity whatsoever to the accusations. Yeah. They had, the, the accusation was like that he kissed someone on a cheek in yeah. like a social situation. It, it absolutely collapsed. That's crazy stuff. Yeah, I think it also had a lot to do with people decided that the content of his stories were misogynistic. And there was, I remember at the time there was this argument about whether or not it was so autobiographical that he was basically telling on himself or whether or not you should just read the book as fiction it's and separate it apart crazy. from him and yeah. shit is it right to yeah. blame, you know attribute all of those yeah. personality traits to him yeah it's we're we're still working through i think as a society right. how we want to treat I never these I've never uh, ascribed to George R Martin a desire to burn <laughs> people to death with dragon fire but <laughs> Although maybe we should interview him and find out. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. So yeah, we've we've come a long way from the subject of the the discussion now. Oh, but yeah. uh, Julian, but it's not, I, well, I think it's a, this is a topic that interests us both. Yeah, the, the, over, a little bit of the overboard. Yeah, uh, me too stuff. But uh, but anyway, yeah, that really did. Uh, I think that did have an effect on the coverage from mainstream institutions, um, and then also the fact that uh, undeniable that he was so vocally against Hillary Clinton and would not kind of fall in line to a to a well we have to we have to stop saying things that could be embarrassing to democrats right. because we can't get Trump 100%. and he did not take that view and that put him 100% at odds with where the mainstream media was headed. Yeah, relatable uh, from my perspective. <laughs> but uh, good news all around uh, for people who love freedom of the press and we will have more rising for you after this. On January 3rd, when the next Congress will assemble, Republicans are expected to have 222 seats in the House, compared to an estimated 213 seats for Democrats. A new Republican House Speaker will need to be elected, and the GOP only has four Republican votes to spare. Current House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has already announced his bid for a Speaker, but faces pushback from five members of his own party, including Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who said McCarthy lacks credibility across every spectrum of the GOP and is not a capable fighting force for the American people. Representatives Ralph Norman of South Carolina and Andy Biggs of Arizona are two other hard nos. Bob Good of Virginia and Matt Rosendale of Montana have also voiced dissent but could still be persuaded. Joining us now to discuss is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro. Welcome, Teslin. Thank you so much. Always glad to be here. Great to have you. So now their demands are not very specific from, from what I can tell, and uh, I, I frankly don't quite agree that, uh, that Kevin McCarthy is not, I don't know, an effective advocate of conservative positions. I think he's done a good job, better job than Mitch McConnell, actually, of keeping like all aspects of the conservative movement um, within the fold. But it is interesting to see, uh, you know, Republic, some Republicans actually demanding something of their of this would be speaker and trying to get some kind of concessions. Uh, something I understand is maybe a little less common or has been in the past, not so common on the Democratic side. Yeah, it's not common at all. Let's not beat around the bush. You know, I'm an independent, so I can't, it's, it doesn't matter what I think, you know, who should lead 
uh, the Democrat or the Republican Party, but let's just call, you know, balls and strikes. Once again, uh, the Republican Party is showing that at least, you know, somebody has the fortitude to speak up and, and challenge and say, you know, let's not just hand it over uh, to just whoever they select and let's put some demands on the table, unlike uh, the Democrat Party and in particularly uh, progressives. You know, let's just call it what it is. You know, last year uh, they were very clear in starting a pack called Team Blue, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, to basically unseat uh, progressives and to challenge progressives that were going against moderate seats. And now these same progressive leaders that all of the progressives gave your last $2 to, your last $5 crying in the stands, you know, singing as if they were the next coming of Christ, they are sitting back and saying absolutely nothing. This is the time to see who is the real leadership on the left. So shout out to Hakeem Jeffries for, let me use the words of Rick Ross, he is the biggest boss thus far. Uh, he is absolutely going for the leadership and nobody is saying anything at all and they will not say anything at all. That includes Bernard uh, and everybody that rides with Bernard. The progressives are showing once again a lack of leadership and I know they'll say that, oh, you know, we're being strategic. But what I have come to realize that to them, strategic means being silent. Yeah. So, you know, we've all been alluding to this, but there was a moment two years ago uh, that was described as the force the vote moment where Democrats were in the same position Republicans are in now, where because the majority was so narrow and because you need 218 votes to confirm a speaker, the handful of squad members, the four to eight of them, depending on how you count, um, had the power to actually hold up confirming Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House in exchange for any number of concessions, including committee appointments. We saw people like um, Katie Porter, who's been a very effective advocate for kind of populist economic policies, uh, you know, taxes on the rich, et cetera, get pushed out of the Financial Services Committee. They could have demanded all kinds of things, including a floor vote on Medicare for All, which is something that the progressives were talking about at the time. Um, and they simply did not. They simply did not. And now, when I have interviewed various progressives uh, like Rokana about whether or not they look back and, and have regrets or why it is that Kim Jeffries is now in a position where he isn't being challenged by any progressives for leadership, they're given the same excuse they gave two years ago, which is that just nobody's ready. We haven't prepared. We haven't had anybody positioning themselves in this way. And, and I wonder what you make of that. Uh, at a certain point, you know, should progressives be looking to these people as leaders, at what point does it seem like almost like a, a planned ineptitude versus um, making genuine mistakes? Because they've had a lot of time to plan at this point. Yeah, let's just be clear. This is a con game. I'll go ahead and say it. It's a con mm -hmm. game. Bottom line, progressives love talking about Democrats and moderates and, oh, you Democrats, oh, you neoliberals, you don't get it, you're just uh, blinded. No, so are you progressives. It is a con game. They have showed you time and time again that it's been all about funneling your money up and selling you a dream. My problem is not that uh, that I don't understand strategy. I, I run a, a strategic communications firm. I get strategy. I understand that things take time. My problem is, Bree, that they went out and lied to these people. They went out and lied to the progressive movement. They lied to folks who were poor, middle class, working class, and promised them a dream. I cannot stand a voluntary, a, a voluntary lie, whether that's Biden who volunteered to pass, uh, to have the back of black people that nobody asked him to do, whether it is the progressives, Bernard Sanders, and everybody else that had people crying in the stands, giving their last $2, whether it is on the Trump side of selling people on hopes and dreams of some magical wall that, we, that would be paid for by Mexico. I cannot stand 
understand the volunteer, the volunteer lie. These people know exactly what they're doing. They're worse than the moderates because you're mm -hmm. taking the last two dollars from the poor and working class, knowing damn well that once you get in the office, you're going to flip the script. And that's the problem that I have. Why not run on the truth? Why not run on the fact that saying, hey, we're going to get in. It's going to take us time. But they did not do that. They sold a hope and dream and a con game. And that is why I have such an issue uh, with the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? That that is the question. What what are they thinking? Is it is it are they insincere when they say they're committed to these things? Is it a it's all about just raising money and then they don't particularly care about supporting a cause? Or would they would say they're more they're being more strategic than you, right? That they have some master plan that you're not privy to, or that there's they have a long term plan, or there's just or they just can't defeat, or, or they the, don't know what yeah. right they or they're they they've given up, up hope Pelosi, that they yeah. that it can work. Yeah, crap. That's much, but it's no master plan. <laughs> this, this is no rubbing of the hands. Oh, I got some master plan. The, the plan is the con game, bottom line. This is why I keep trying to tell people it is important that you get involved on the local and the state level. As far as Congress, it's over with. It's a wrap. Get local and state leadership. When I say local, I'm talking about city commissioners that have executive power to make the decisions, you know, that can make effective change right now in, in your city. Get on board with folks who are running for state house, a state rep, state senate that you have a little bit more access to. Because as far as Congress is concerned, it's it, I think we're just we're behind the ball and it's too it's too far, too far gone to right the ship. Um, unless you have that local leadership that is putting pressure on those folks in Congress that say either you do or else or or we're going to make sure that you lose nothing will ever change. The only thing that a politician's fear, fear is the ability to lose their seat, period. So as long as progressives continue to keep giving their last $2 and $5, I said it last year, Brie, on your podcast, as long as they can continue to give your last $2 and $5, you, you're going to continue to get played, period. We can see it. Where's Bernard? Paging Bernard. Hello, Bernard, are you around? Why is Bernard not saying anything? At the end of the day, they're going to sit there, they're going to shut up and shout out to Hakeem Jeffries for showing them exactly how it's done. And that does not mean that I'm supporting him and his policies. What it means is he is literally taking this seat and every last one of them are saying nothing at all. They're going to sit there, they're going to take it and they're going to like it. Yeah, and some people have said that he—they're afraid that he's actually going to be worse than Nancy Pelosi in some ways. He's very explicit about um, his commitments, for example, to kind of unlimited funding for Israel. He's referred to Israel as the sixth borough of New York. I, I mean, he's—he's he's, as you mentioned, Teslin backed the super PAC that was designed to target progressives and make sure that they don't um, win elections. I mean, he is—you—you you, know—the final boss of progressives in a lot of ways in terms of the kind of pol politician you want to defeat. And for him to be kind of cruising into this leadership position without any public pushback, it seems, from the people who are supposed to be the left vanguard is perhaps not surprising, but it is disappointing to do those in the left. Thank you so much for joining us today, Teslin. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. Over the weekend, protests broke out in China over the government's zero-COVID policy. The widespread demonstrations were triggered by a deadly fire last Thursday, killed 10 people and left nine injured. It appears lockdown measures delayed firefighters from reaching the victims in time. Assistant to the Secretary of Defense John Kirby was asked about the protests. Let's take a listen to that. I was hoping, uh, what is the White House's message, the president's message to people in China who were peaceably protesting COVID lockdowns there? And then did the topic of China's zero COVID policy come up in the president's bilateral meeting with President Xi when they met in Indonesia a couple weeks ago? They did talk about COVID uh, and the effect that the pandemic had had around the world. Uh, clearly, that came up inside uh, 
the, the conversation. Uh, I don't know if specifically the zero uh, COVID policy w was an issue of discussion, but certainly COVID was on the agenda, as you might expect that it, it would be. Um, and our, our message to peaceful protesters around the world uh, is the same and, and consistent. People should be allowed uh, uh, the, the, the right to assemble and to peacefully protest policies or laws or dictates that, uh, that they take issue with. Does the White House support the, their, their efforts to sort of regain you know, personal freedoms in light of these lockdowns? The White House supports the right of peaceful protest. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted against the Biden administration's response to China's lockdowns and promised that come January, the GOP Select Committee on China will, quote, reckon with the pariah that is the Chinese Communist Party. Joining us now to discuss is geopolitical risk analyst at Morning Consult, Scott Moskowitz. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Scott, there have been some mixed characterizations of what these protests are. Some, some, and I think there's probably some legitimate diversity among why people are protesting. So some people want an end to zero COVID, but there is also an argument that they are asking for certain provisions that were supposed to make the lockdowns easier, not an end to the lockdowns themselves, and into some of the more maybe draconian aspects of them. It seems like locking certain entrances and exits may, may have contributed to this, um, the death from this fire, which is obviously so tragic and regrettable. What's your take on what's actually going on on the ground in China? Uh, I think with any sort of, you know, largely uncoordinated protest movement, which this seems to be, um, you know, they're born out of frustration. So it's not like a lot of people organized together and we said we have these specific policy aims. There was frustration about the state of things in general, all related to COVID policies and other things that have tied into it, possibly what's going on with the economy. Uh, and from there, it just spiraled. And so some people might have had very simple aims. You saw everything ranging from people calling for, I just want to be able to go out and watch a movie, to people saying, you know, down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party, which was a very small you know, part of the protest, probably at this point. But you can see how quickly these things sort of spiral. Mm. Yeah, it's so, um, you know, unusual to see uh, protests even of this size um, in China, given you know, how repressive the government is uh, and so on. So what would you, you know, expect to see after this? Is this going to be a situation where they protest and then, you know, it's kind of go, going back to the status quo? Or is there a sense that things have really been shaken up and there could be political ramifications or, or I guess, or ramifications for the protesters? Yeah, it's a really good question. You're right. These are really unprecedented protests. And I want to clarify and say it's not that there aren't protests in China, which is something that people often think does not happen. But what there are, are often isolated protests about specific things, often related to property seizures or labor. And the government does a pretty good job of isolating them. Nobody hears about them. Here, what was so wild was that you had protests in multiple cities going on at once, roughly about the same thing. And the protesters seem to be aware of each other and drawing inspiration from each other. And that was a real breakdown in the party state censorship mechanisms. So it could have pretty far reaching ramifications. Scott, we've been giving uh, a lot of credit to the fact that there are a number of voices on the right that have been critical about kind of the blank check of military funding for Ukraine and who have been pushing more, frankly, than the left flank of this country towards some kind of diplomatic resolution. But it does seem that, like, uh, based on Kevin McCarthy's statement, that while there is a kind of um, disinterest in doing World War III in Ukraine and Russia, there does seem to be some appetite for a direct engagement with China with the 
possibly cataclysmic implications uh, that will come along with it. What do you make of the posture of Kevin McCarthy, who stands to be House Minority Leader in all likelihood, saying that it's time for a reckoning with the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, I think you're right. We see that in our data when we track how people across different parties uh, feel about different countries. Obviously, after the war in Ukraine, uh, with Ukraine, you know, Russia's Russia sort of fell down and enmity towards Russia really rose. And for a while, it was separate from China. But since then, we've seen, you know, aggression, enmity towards China, mistrust of China rising, especially in the Republican Party. Both Democrats and Republicans are pretty negative on China, but Republicans are especially negative on China. And, you know, I don't know who it necessarily serves. I mean, nobody wants a war. War with China would be especially cataclysmic. Any kind of breakdown with China, we're already in pretty bad circumstances. Things may have improved a little bit with uh, Biden and Xi meeting, uh, but it's not great, not great for us, for them, for the global economy. We've spent a lot of time, not just us, everyone, trying to psychoanalyze Vladimir Putin. You know, what is he thinking with this invasion? What, you know, is he crazy? Is he madman? Did he miscalculate, et cetera? What, how, what would we be saying about Xi Jinping's thinking if we were trying to get inside his head? Is he watching these protests and saying, wow, this, my policies have really gone overboard with zero COVID, we bet it all on this and it's not working out? Or is he saying, oh, well, we'll just crack down harder, we're going to stay the course, what else can we do? Is he, uh, obviously, he's a rational actor to some degree and that he's done a remarkable job of staying in power and consolidating power, actually. Um, you know, how, how, what do we make of, of how, uh, what we know about how he thinks through these things? Yeah, I think you're right. He's a rational actor. You know, it's hard to say with Putin. The one similarity they have is that increasingly they are surrounded by loyalists and yes men. And that can push them into weird positions where they're caught off guard by reactions to things. Uh, that being said, you know, as I said, there aren't many dissenting voices within the party. So he still remains in a pretty strong position politically. And he might be thinking about making some changes, but you know, policy-wise, but I don't think he's a person who will accept being pushed and, you know, he could come down pretty hard. Yeah, and it's worth noting that, you know, China's reported uh, fewer than 6,000, I think a little over 5,000 COVID deaths. America, of course, has reported well over a million COVID deaths, and that doesn't necessarily mean that people would welcome some of the more restricted policies some people are obviously happy to make that that trade-off and have thoughts and feelings about whether or not the death counts are being um, recorded accurately. But some have pointed out that in the context of the Chinese protests, folks who were very critical of protests against um, restrictive COVID policies who are politically on the right, like the uh, Canadian trucker uh, de uh, convoy, folks who are very critical of those efforts seem to have a lot of support um, for the uh, Chinese protesters. Naomi Klein, who is a progressive um, leftist writer who, frankly, wrote a book about this in The Shock Doctrine, talking about how um, moments of kind of national tragedy or pandemics and things like that can be exploited uh, by politicians um, for political ends, oftentimes moving them to the right, has seemingly not imagined that this could be a situation that the type of which she often wrote about. What do you make of some of the inconsistencies of folks who seem to see the Chinese protesters protesting COVID lockdowns as an example of freedom and liberty and saw the kind of conservative protesters against the, 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 the lockdowns on this side of the, the Pacific quite differently? Yeah, I mean, I understand the argument and I can understand the frustration that people on the right might have seeing that there's some, you know, maybe a little hypocritical there. But I think you've got to understand that these lockdowns in China 
are very different than anything that we experienced in the U.S. It never would have occurred in the U.S. I mean, people are being locked in their apartments for weeks at a time. People's pets are being taken away. Old people are getting bullied back beyond cordons. When we talked about lockdowns in the U.S., we really meant something fundamentally different. Yes, businesses were closed. It did impact people's livelihood. And it was tragic in a lot of ways. And a lot of people suffered and we had to make very hard decisions. But it is nothing like the kind of often capricious exercise of authority that you've seen in the case of the Chinese lockdowns. Hmm. Well, we appreciate you joining us today, Scott. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. Been extremely unfair to you. I think. Who was they, though? We can't for, say who they for, is, for can the we? Press. I'm not using the. I don't, I don't use the word as the, as the way I guess you, you guys use. I'm, I'm talking. It is about them, it. though, isn't it? I mean, because <laughs> no. it, it, because when you think <laughs> about not. it, consider it. In 2018. What do you mean it's not? It, what What do I mean? Like, uh, uh, okay, so how about? Are you leaving? Are you afraid of the press? He's on. I'll say it right now. Um, you guys, I, I, you guys want to bring that stuff up? And then have think the we're not going to have a conversation. Like, have the discussion. Like you, you think Ye's yeah, going to come in here and say, here's my pain, here's my suffering, I'm going to say, I hear you. And then he's going to say, and it was Jewish people, and I'm going to be like, okay, but don't you consider it? So I'm not going to do this. I, I refuse. Go, uh... Hmm. That was, of course, Ye, formerly Kanye West, walking off the set of popular podcaster Tim Pool's show. How about that, Brianna? Yeah, so this was one of the, if not the most streamed um, video sure. people yeah. were watching on the internet last night. People were really hyped to see what happened when Kanye's, Kanye Ye West sorry, now gives one of these infamous interviews. Not only just because it's Kanye West and we know what he's been saying and tweeting over the past month or so, but because he just sat down, of course, with Donald Trump and had this dinner mm -hmm. with Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos, both of who are persona non grata. Nick Fuentes is, um, you know, Holocaust denier, kind of a more of an open white supremacist. Not a lot of argument there about uh, how he's defined. And Milo Yiannopoulos used to be a real figurehead of a certain point in time, kind of conservative, far-right Trumpian movement before he got kind of ousted from the party over pedophilia kind of allegations or that he said something that seemed to yeah. be pro-pedophilia. Not, not that he did that he it. Participated right, in, but that, making light of it. Like making, exactly. Yeah. Which is very funny given that that's now like the number one <laughs> issue of people on the right is Exactly. So it's about weird rumors. to see these two back. Obviously, yeah. Donald Trump got in a lot of heat for sitting down with both of them. He said he didn't know who Nick Fuentes was and disavowed it and said it was just because of Kanye. But in this interview, we get a little context for how that meeting even came to be. Apparently, Milo and uh, uh, Fuentes reached out to Alex Jones, who then asked Kanye if he could give them their contact information. And Kanye seems to be weirdly like a ship in the sea buoyed about by these kind of grifter-type personalities. Mm -hmm. Not to say that it absolves him of ultimately sitting down with these people and not vetting them. But it does seem like a, just a weird, almost accidental dynamic set up here by people who are trying to exploit Kanye's potentially mental breakdown or whatever else is happening. Right. So so in this interview, uh, so the portion of it with Kanye only lasts about um, about 20 minutes, yeah. maybe less. And then he storms off. And I, I really give I give credit to Tim Pool here. I've been on a show before. I mm -hmm. don't always agree with uh, everything he says. I certainly don't like a lot of the guests he's had. But um, but he had the opportunity to do this interview. I absolutely we would have done this interview if we had the opportunity yeah, to do it. No way you don't interview Kanye. 
And he and he challenges him. Kanye starts saying immediately, mildly, and like it didn't even not not to take away from Tim Pool, but yeah. it's the Kanye gets up and walks off at the mildest of pushback. Yes. It's not even really pushback. It's just like, can you contextualize why right. it is that you keep attributing to Jewish people things that individual Jewish folks right. have done to you? Right. That's what it is very clear. That's the line uh, Tim was trying to take. That like when you're when you're railing against. Jewish people, sounds like you mean specific Jewish people and maybe the corporate media itself, which, yes, sure, does comprise many Jewish people, but it's not their, I, I assume it's not because, because, it's not they're, because Jewish. they're Jewish. Yeah. It's not their Jewishness. Yeah. It's not their, there's nothing. And then, right, because some of the other more far-right, explicitly white nationalist people, Nick Fuentes might be among them, I'm not sure precisely what his views are, will then attribute that to um, genetic characteristics or like the brain shapes of Jewish people that really, you know, scientific racism yeah. that is a part of, um, of, of anti-Semitic white nationalist belief. Yeah. So that's something you could have asked him about. Uh, but yes, like you said, he leaves with just the, the littlest bit of like, well, wait, wait, hold on a minute. And I think that speaks to the hollowness of some people who rail against, oh, I've been silenced. Oh, I've been canceled. Well, you say you want to speak. You say you're being stopped from speaking your mind. You were just, that, that went on for two hours. He could have spoke, he could have said whatever he wanted, and then people would have disagreed, and Tim would have challenged him, and maybe the other host would have. He didn't even want to do that. So don't whine yeah. about being silenced if then when given the opportunity to speak, you don't, you shut up. I mean, look, during the Pierce Morgan interview, Kanye did go through that process, right? Mm -hmm. It was a, something like a two-hour-plus interview that went back and forth. Pierce Morgan really hit that line about, why can't you just say someone who happened to be Jewish was mean to me? Why does it have to be the Jewish people? And Kanye broke down eventually at the end of that two-hour clip and said, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. And he gives an apology. And at the point at which he gives the apology, Piers Morgan rap, wraps the interview, yeah. which Kanye had been complaining about. The whole time he had been saying, basically, I'm refusing to apologize because I want to be able to have this other conversation about exploitation in the industry and all these other kind of things, which are probably very legitimate. But I'm afraid that you'll stop talking to me the second that we're yeah. not going around. But that wouldn't have happened on Tim Pool's show. That, did, that <laughs> did happen on Piers Morgan's show, yeah. though. So I wonder how much yeah, Kanye is kind of reacting to what he's already experienced before. Not that that's an excuse, but I think everyone lost out from him walking off, especially since Tim Pool was then stuck in a situation where he was potentially going to have to interview two rather unsavory characters, including someone who's very closely associated with Charlottesville and that kind of explicitly, you know, the Jews would not replace this white nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. And I think luckily for Tim Pool, who for context is a very popular YouTube streamer with over, I think, uh, mm -hmm. 1.3 million uh, subscribers, didn't, wasn't put in that situation. Right, because they left to check they on uh, Ye rather Ye. quickly. Um, it, it's remarkable how they managed to have attached themselves to Ye here. These are two individuals I would say do not um, <laughs> do not offer a lot. Yeah. Uh, currently, Milo obviously was a very large figure for a period of time. He was supposed to headline CPAC in. Uh, might have been 2016 or 2017, one of those years. I feel so. And then, uh, and then had this fall from grace. And then there were a lot of revelations about uh, really his work ethic, that he mm. was a lot of his, um, his uh, articles for Breitbart were written by other people, mm. um, that it, he seemed like he owed a lot of people money. He, mm. he, was, he, was, he was a con. He was doing a big con. He wasn't responsible for a lot of his own the work that was making him famous. Um, and, uh, and so he was let go from Breitbart. He was kind of shunned uh, and has not really recovered. And then, I mean, he's done, a, he's done some weird stuff ever since. Uh, I haven't been following his career since he fell out of the limelight. I, I think he's... I think he identifies himself as like an ex-gay type person. Oh, I thought he got married. I thought I saw his... I, thought, I saw a wedding to a black man. 
I think he downgraded the husband to a roommate. Is okay. what he claimed. All right. Um, okay. Anyway, I people's personal life. I don't. I don't care. That's not. Yeah. Know, what I'm trying. But it was more, the complaints about his reporting and his writing and how it wasn't even him. There was a lot of that. And then Nick Fuentes. Is, yes, is this very? Uh, I, I think obnoxious. I mean, you can watch his show. See what yeah. you think for yourself. Yeah. Very obnoxious. Very explicitly um, racist white nationalist figure. Um, even does even not Donald have Trump is about that. Yeah. So that they're, they're able to to be become the, uh, the, uh, the, the shepherds of the Kanye shepherds West's of this, journey. One of the most famous rappers yeah. uh, is actually pretty incredible. If they have a talent, it's that. Yeah, and I don't... I'll say this. I think it also says something about how vulnerable Kanye, Kanye was, how exposed yes. he is. Because I have had this conversation, a lot of leftists are going to be mad at me about this, but I've constantly been saying there are a lot of folks who articulate a legitimate critique of the two-party system, but it's right. It's people like Fuentes and Yiannopoulos that reach out and say, come in my direction. Mm -hmm. And leftists seem to think it's beneath yeah. them to want to reach out and do this kind of handling of people. And maybe Kanye West isn't the best example because he seems to be going through more than just a political evolution right now. I mean, I think uh, he's going through a mental health crisis. I think crisis. he's going through a mental health crisis. I, I'm even, like, hesitant to ascribe, to say that he's an anti, he's saying things that are anti-Semitic, but I don't know that I mean, he is he, enough he, of a coherent. It, he, he is. He is. I think he's a kook. I think he's a kook. I, I think that's true. But the, that, that being and said, I, think he's I do think that if any number of people on the left, I'm sorry, I, I think that if he's taking Nick Fuentes' right. call, Kanye would have taken Bernie's call. Kanye yeah. would have taken like left influencers' call if they were interested in that sort of thing. And I think it's really interesting to see how the different sides of uh, the. The, the aisle there are operating in these moments. Yeah. Well, maybe someone, maybe someone a, a bit more respectable on the right <laughs> could, could try to reach out because Fuentes and Milo are really. I'm French. not trying to just badmouth people. They, they're not. They don't really speak for any contingent they're not, of the they're right. They're not sending their they best. <laughs> Wild <laughs> All right. stuff. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. While Russia backed out of nuclear arms talks with the U.S. for now, the State Department announced Monday that Moscow, quote, unilaterally postponed resuming discussions under the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, also known as START, which is an arms control pact that curbs both nations' stockpiles of nuclear weapons. Talks will now be set for next week. Meanwhile, the U.S. is contemplating supplying Ukraine with additional weapons, more specifically, cheap, small pre precision bombs for Kyiv to use in its rockets. According to Reuters, Boeing is said to be developing these small-type weapons that would go to Ukraine to beef up its arsenal. Now, th this is kind of interesting because I was reading that Ukraine is actually agitating for more long-range missiles, and there is some <laughs> restraint being exercised by the U.S. government right now because they, their fear is that that will provoke an escalation yeah. that, frankly, Ukraine cannot defend. At the same time that we're experiencing um, our own reserves being diminished, they are the 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 kind of the interests at play are obvious here when you see how it's it's causing there to be a ramping up of production at the the Lockheed Martin plant in Alabama that Joe Biden visited last year and on and on and on all the critiques that we've made about how much money the U.S. is spending on this conflict but it is interesting to see that there does seem to be this pattern of the Biden campaign showing more restraint than the war hawks in the media who are kind of backing all of Zelensky's calls for whatever kind of weaponry that he demands no matter what the implications are for ultimate peace settlements yeah that's a good point it's fair enough it, we've been very very critical of the Biden administration throughout this conflict. But it is true that if, if many in the media got their way, 
no fly zone. Being, the no fly zone yeah. being the best example of that. The, know, why the aren't you Russians doing more? Are we doing Poland enough? Yeah, yeah. fiasco. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it is good to know that there are some limits to what they're willing to do, and that makes perfect sense, especially if we're saying right, this is so Ukraine can defend itself, not so we can have World War Three. Then right, just weapons that can actually defend yeah. the territory they're trying to defend, rather than you know as, as a <laughs> precursor to some actual ground invasion of Russia. Uh, the nuclear, the talks being delayed is not good, although I, if they're just delayed till next week, fine. But uh, we want to have, it's, we want the U.S. and Russia and other nuclear-capable nations yeah. to be in constant dialogue about ramping down or, or keep, keeping at bay the forces who want to unleash the end of the planet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does feel that the way that the postponed nuclear talks have been covered do have an air of, America's being so reasonable. Uh, Russia wants to keep all of its nukes because it wants to do a nuclear war. They're the ones that we should be afraid of. Um, and as I mentioned in my radar last week, there is just one country that's ever actually deployed nuclear weapons, and it's the one that we're sitting in and broadcasting from right now. Yep. Um, so we'll see what happens. Ultimately, obviously, if there is some real desire to get out of these nuclear con uh, disarmament conversations, then we'll, we can revise. But, you know, I, I also was speaking to a nuclear expert who I've since uh, fallen out with a little bit, but Joe Cerenzioni earlier this year was pointing to how um, different the posture is now than it was in the 90s, where nuclear um, disarmament was such a big part of the conversation, the political conversation, and folks are really pushing for it in a kind of... Um, both global and kind of bipartisan manner. And there just doesn't seem to have been the mm. appetite for that since the Obama. My era. understanding is that many countries actually are lesser, or countries that have their defenses basically covered by the U.S. Right. or by Russia, I guess, uh, want to uh, take get rid of their nuclear arsenals because they're costly to maintain. Right. And, you know, what's the point if, like... Well, now Ukraine is maybe arguably having some regrets about you. Well, right. That, so then the regret you have is if you needed them when you get invaded. But uh, so, so many, like France, right, doesn't expect to, if France was invaded, the U.S. would come to the rescue. The cavalry would ride in on their nuclear <laughs> torpedoes and that right. would be that. But, uh, but it, you can save money and actually get rid of them if you're... Yeah, and I think that the goal that is that if France were invaded, if nobody had any nuclear weapons, then America coming to their defense wouldn't necessarily mean nuclear holocaust. It would mean well, if nobody had nuclear weapons, including America, right, and the people invading France, right? There would be, I mean, which well, used to be the goal, but doesn't even seem to be on the horizon at all anymore. Yes, of course, wars were very, obviously, very, very destructive, very deadly in the pre-nuclear. We've never had, actually, we've never really had, we've had, never had war with nuclear. We've had. The U.S. using nuclear weapons in that one case, but not against a power that also had nuclear weapons. We've never had a scenario where two nuclear-ready uh, countries go to war and use their nuclear weapons, which yeah, we all think would both, be very both, catastrophic. Both parties are fighting for it, so never say never. Russia's invasion, however, has stoked anti-war sentiments among some in Russia. Activists against the Russia-Ukraine conflict fled their motherland to seek asylum at the U.S. southern border. So they took a trip to Mexico and made their way up. But according to The New York Times, instead of freedom— they were met with shackles and put into immigration detention centers. Many of those asylum seekers have actually likened the conditions to those of Russia. Yeah, Anti-war activists had been flocking to the U.S. in search of refuge before the war, but the mass exit has since increased. Mm. This story is fascinating to me because at the same time that so many media stories are talking about how terrible the conditions in Russia are, how authoritarian Putin is, not wrongly, and really kind of elevating and celebrating people who are willing to protest and speak out against Russia. We're seeing a similar kind of coverage happening with respect to what's going on in these China protests right now. 
But when push comes to shove and these immigrants try to find asylum, like we have an asylum mm -hmm. process, not just a normal immigration process, but a process for people who are seeking political refuge. That's the whole point of this country. It's what Lady Liberty is all about, right? They're discovering that a lot of what America's propaganda is globally in terms of being standing, you know, a country that's welcoming people um, who are fleeing political persecution with open arms is really not the case. And they're getting the treatment that so many immigrants from South and Central America, who often are also political asylees, have been um, receiving, and Haiti as well has been receiving. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah. It, it seems to me it would make sense to want people to flee Russia in a sapping Russia of, frankly, available bodies, right? The, 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 they're going to throw everybody into <laughs> I don't know if you're going to put a real effort. dent in Russia's uh, Well, manpower. if we could pay, I mean, we, we had a guest on, it might not have been a day you were in the hosting chair, um, Brian Kaplan, a, an economist I quite like, saying, mm -hmm. I'm more cost, even cost effective. If we're committing massive amounts of money to, in terms of the weapons we're sending, just pay people to defect from mm. the army. Just pay them <laughs> to give up, transfer them out of that part of Europe. Mm. Move that. Yeah, maybe France can take them, uh, and then and you, you actually would sap the military of its mm -hmm. ability to fight. So, in some sense, the, the best place for for Russians is anywhere but the Russian front, where they can be put to military yeah. use. If we're if that's what we're actually doing, if we want to, if this is a war, we're committed to winning. And we, we're not, we, yeah, we're going we're to ship tons of weapons, we're going to spend tons of money, but we're not willing to, like, tweak or relax our asylum policies for five seconds. You're not really committed to, to winning this yeah, thing. Yeah, and, and also, <laughs> it, it, it really undermines our humanitarian commitments, the extent to which we always say that the yeah. reason that we're involved in everything is because we care about the children and we care about the women and we care about, you know, the, the horrible authoritarians and what they're doing to folks overseas. For us to be so callous, I mean, it has some echoes of, I mean, it's obviously not commensurate in the least, but there are all these horrible stories of people who are fleeing World War II and the horrors of the Holocaust who got turned away at American shores and had to go back and were ultimately exterminated in a genocide. So, I mean, it, it, yeah. is, it is, I think, important an important story because it shines a light on why our asylum system is so important and why it's such a problem that it's so un underfunded that all different kinds of folks, some of whom have more or less political merit to their asylum claims are all bundled together. Certain groups, there's been a lot of coverage on how Ukrainians have been treated very well with respect to other groups, uh, how Haitians don't even get to touch the floor. They're immediately shipped back out of the country on airplanes versus all these other kind of tiers of people as you work your way down. Um, and it really should be about the merit of your political claim and the harm you face elsewhere. And if America wants the reputation that it's seeking through these wars of being a defender of freedom and democracy, it should act like it when refugees yeah. come to our shores. Well, the bigger issue is we, we we do have to just fix kind of our immigration system we do. because we do have an issue where everyone is claiming asylum. Some of these claims are not realistic. Sure, it's, but there's not enough people, funding. Right, not that's enough what people are judges doing. Judges to actually it, adjudicate well, the cases. And then, right, and then it's a whole issue. Yeah, we need to make it easier to come, for people to come here legally. So, and then you won't have the situation where yeah. we have so many people coming in that we don't know what to do with that aren't technically supposed to be here, as is the case here. If we just made it easier. That would be better. Yeah, we, we can agree about that. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, a new report finds that at least 10 people living in Brooklyn's little Pakistan neighborhood were actually appointed to positions within the borough's Democratic Party organization without their knowledge in October. We're going to have two of those new appointees on to discuss. Mm. Wild. Fascinating. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I learned over Thanksgiving that my grandmother has figured this out how to watch us on roku and other streaming services as well so exciting if 
Grandma can do it. Grandma Anyone can do, can do it. it. You can do it too. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, guys.